Author Jay Strack, he writes about an NBA basketball game he once attended. This game ended strangely. Dallas Mavericks point guard Derek Harper dribbled the final six seconds off the clock. He thought his team was up by point. Actually, the game was tied. Dallas could have used the wasted time to win the game. They ended up losing in overtime. But Strack wrote afterwards, he said this, Dribble, dribble, dribble go the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, and the years of our lives. How often have you and I dribbled away valuable seconds that we could have used to win the game? You, you could have won a prize for knowing Christ. You, you could have won a reward for serving God. You could have won souls to Jesus Christ. Instead, we dribbled away the seconds. It was like we had time to waste instead of a game to win. Well, Paul's goal in tonight's chapters is to help us avoid that mistake. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has his sights set on eternity. He's focused on the judgment seat of Christ. And he encourages us not to waste a single second. Well, chapter 5 begins. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. During Paul's stay there in Corinth, remember, he was a tent maker. He, as well as Aquila and Priscilla, they made tents. And here he compares a tent to the human body. You know, both are temporary dwellings. Both are fragile and flimsy. Now, I know a lot of people that like to camp, but not me. <laughs> I like to camp once every five years in a nice hotel. That's where I like to camp. My problem isn't really sleeping out under the stars or enjoying the outdoors. I just hate all the effort that goes into camping. I mean, you got to pack up everything, and then you got to set up, and then you got to tear down. To me, camping is a hassle. And you know what? So is camping out in this body. My, oh, my. Think of the time and the energy and the money you and I waste maintaining our bodies. I mean, for starters, you have to refuel the thing three times a day. My car can run a week on a tank of gas. You also have to park your body for a few hours every single night to let it rest up. A body requires frequent oil changes. It requires a daily wash and wax. And to top it all off, you're constantly driving into the mechanics for repairs. And you know what really upsets me about my body is I have to drag it around with me everywhere I go. My body is like a tent. A lot of time and effort and energy and money goes into its upkeep. This is why bodies are a hassle. But Paul says that one day we'll swap these temporary tents, these troublesome tents, for a more permanent structure. He says, we've been promised a building from God. A building, mind you. You know, when Jesus returns for his church at the rapture, we'll receive a new eternal body. A body made from elements that are not subject to decay or deterioration. Hey, your heavenly body won't have to be refueled or rested or repaired. It'll run on all cylinders at all times. 
Your eternal body won't be set up or torn down in your new body. You'll be able to use all of your time and your energy and your efforts, and you can spend it on worshiping Jesus. Hey, one day, our spirits are going to be given the keys to hassle-free housing. <laughs> We're going to get glorified bodies. Once there was a family, they had a little ritual they conducted whenever one of the children's goldfish, pet goldfish, would die. Mom, dad, brother, and sister, they would all gather around the commode. Well, three-year-old Drew, he would hold the fish, and five-year-old Alexi, she would say the prayer. And then both kids would flush it down to fish heaven. Well, on one such solemn occasion, after the goldfish had been sent to heaven, the little girl asked her mom, she said, if, ask if Grandpa, who had died several months earlier, if Grandpa was also in heaven. Well, Mom said confidently, yes, honey, your Grandpa's in heaven. That's when the little boy, he asked, who flushed him? Well, hey, when the Lord Jesus returns for his church, we're all going to flush these bodies, and we're going to receive new and perfect and glorified bodies. I can't wait. He says, for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. You know, the philosophy of Greek culture viewed the body as evil, as totally and completely unredeemable. Epictetus, he once said, a poor soul, he called himself a poor soul burdened with a corpse. That's how he viewed himself. Seneca, Roman Historian, he called himself a slave of his body. The Greek hope for the afterlife was to be free from the body, to be a disembodied soul. But Paul tells us that God has a greater plan for us. He is going to transform these mortal bodies into immortal bodies. We have a house, a building from heaven. One day we're going to be resurrected. He says, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. He said, we're longing not to be a disembodied spirit, but we're longing for this building that God has for us in heaven. God's redemption will not be complete until every trace of sin has been blotted out, and that includes its effect on your body and my body. You know, if you were in a car wreck and all the insurance paid for was just repairs to the engine, you'd be disappointed. How about some body work? Well, God is not only a mechanic. He also has a body shop. He does. He's not only an expert under the hood, purifying and sanctifying and energizing our spirit, but he also redesigns wrecked bodies. And you've got one made in the heavens, waiting for you. Paul says in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or as a down payment. In other words, the spiritual life we're enjoying today is really just earnest money on the spiritual body we're going to be given later. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us means that there's more to come for us. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, Paul has said he longs. 
He literally groans for his eternal body. Imagine this eternal body. Imagine, will you, a body that doesn't sag. Gravity has no effect upon it. It never gets sick. It never gets the crud. It never becomes tired. Boy, the older I get, the more I groan for my new bod. Yet here's my current dilemma. I've been given this great hope, but every morning, man, I have to drag out of bed and I have to look at the same ugly mug and the same ugly mirror every morning. I mean, how do I confidently hope for a new body while I'm dealing with the deterioration of this old body? And the answer, Paul says, is faith. As Paul puts it, we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, often people will use the expression, blind faith. Hey, but that's an oxymoron. Faith isn't blind. Faith sees more than I see. Sight is limited to the temporal and the touchable. It's incapable of seeing what's eternal and what's spiritual. Sight can't see things like hope and love and God and His Spirit and the eternal things. But faith, faith sees them clearly. We hold on to all of God's promises by faith. Now here's Paul's faith. He says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There are two passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, that teach us that believers will have to wait until the rapture to enjoy our new bodies. Yet, the moment the spirit of the believer departs from this earthly tent, he immediately finds himself in the presence of the Lord. As Paul puts it, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. This notion of soul sleep taught in some churches, that the soul sort of hibernates until the resurrection, this is not biblical. The moment we die, our spirit goes straight into the presence of Jesus. Verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. Whether I go to be with Jesus, whether I stay in this body, Paul says, my goal is to please the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the term Paul uses here, judgment seat, is a translation of the Greek word bima, the bima seat was the platform in Greek towns where the officials would come and make important announcements. From the Bema seat, rewards were handed out. Decisions were handed down. And one day, every believer will stand before the Bema seat of Christ. will stand there for the same purposes. Now, don't confuse the great white throne of judgment with the judgment seat of Christ. Two different things. Revelation 20 talks about the great white throne where the lost, those who don't know Christ, will be judged and condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne of judgment is for unbelievers while the Bema seat is for Christians. Our place in heaven is secured by the blood of Jesus. But our service for the Lord, the things we've done for the Lord, will be tried to see what reward we'll receive. In other words, our motive will be judged. Reminds me of the widow. 
she was furious over the fact that her husband had bequeathed all of his money to his secretary. I mean, his own wife had been cut out of the wheel. She rushed to the graveyard to have the inscription on his tombstone changed. But she arrived too late. She hated spending her own money on a brand new tombstone. So she figured that it would be cheaper to just have the grave diggers chisel a little addendum onto what had already been written. Right after rest in peace, she added, until we meet again. <laughs> hey, each of us will one day meet again. One day we'll all meet around the Bema seat of Christ. And we'll be judged for what we did for the Lord, what we did for Him with our lives. Did we serve with sincerity? Or did we serve just to be seen by men? In that day, our motives will be measured out and rewarded. Verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Here's why Paul. one of the reasons Paul preached. He, was, he knew about the terror of the Lord. You see, in Christ, there's no need for a Christian to be afraid of standing before God. Why? Because we'll stand in the righteousness of Jesus. But we should fear for those who don't know the Lord. For the last place that an unredeemed sinner wants to be is in the presence of a holy God. His holiness is terrifying when our guilt is exposed. Lost people will quiver uncontrollably in His presence. This is why Paul was so determined to preach the gospel. He says in verse 11, We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Paul lives with integrity not to earn God's approval, but to earn the right to be heard by sinners. Paul knew that he was saved by grace through faith. He wasn't trying to prove anything to God. The Lord knew his heart, and so should the Corinthians. They also knew the purity of his heart and his intentions. He writes, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. You know, Paul, the legitimacy of Paul's ministry was proven by the motivation of his heart. Whereas his critics there in Corinth, they relied on appearance. They were all about the right persona and the right image. Paul wasn't worried about looking good in the eyes of people. He was all about being good in the eyes of God. You know, history tells us that Paul really wasn't much to look at. He was barely five feet tall. He had a hunchback. He had a hooked nose. He was bow-legged. And his thick eyebrows, he had two thick eyebrows, looked like a long caterpillar running across his forehead. His eyes were often infected and bulged with pus. In addition, his body was tattooed with the scars of the beatings and stonings he endured. Paul would have never made the cover of GQ magazine, trust me. He was a walking illustration that in ministry, it's heart, not appearance, that matters. And yet the false teachers there in Corinth, they were just the opposite. They all looked like FCA leaders. Big men on campus, muscular, handsome, rugged, good-looking jocks. That's what they looked like. These guys tried hard to be cool. They were the hipsters, tall on appearance but short on substance. 
They wore the designer jeans. They put a little product in their hair. But in the final analysis, they were more about marketing than ministry. They were all hype and little holiness. In contrast to their emphasis on image, folks thought Paul was nuts. They thought he'd gone off the deep end. And you know he did very little to change their minds. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, in other words, if you think we're crazy, well, then we're crazy for God. Or if we're of sound mind, it's for you. I love this. He says, if you think I'm crazy, just remember, I'm crazy for God. And if you think I'm sane and right, I am. So you can follow my example. Either way, Paul didn't take an opinion poll before he acted. You'll never catch Paul strategizing decisions based on political correctness. He didn't give a rip about what people thought of him. He lived to point people to Jesus. Paul reveals the motive of his ministry in verse 14. I love this. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. I love that. The reason Paul endured the intense suffering and the persecution and the rejection he experienced was because he loved Jesus Christ and because Jesus loved him. He knew how much the Lord loved him, and he wanted to love the Lord Jesus in return. That's what motivated his ministry. Notice so far in chapter 5, Paul has mentioned three motivations for serving Jesus. He started out talking about rewards. At the beam of seat of Christ, we'll be rewarded for our service. He also talked about fear being a motivation. Those who terror before the Lord. Now he talks about love. The love of Jesus for me, my love in return for him. You know, all three are powerful motivators, but without a doubt, the highest and the holiest and the healthiest motivation is love. This is what should compel you and me. Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels us. I mean, knowing in your heart of hearts that Jesus loves you and died for you and rose for you and cares for you, this is what captivates and dominates a person's heart. This is what causes them to go anywhere, do anything for Jesus' sake. A person motivated by the love of Christ is like the ever-ready bunny. They just keep going and going and going. Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels us. If your tank is full of love, you'll never run out of gas. Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Now, here's a truth about your salvation you should understand. When Jesus died, you died with him. Our sin nature was crucified on the cross. Think of it like copy and paste. You know, my computer allows me to copy text from one dark document and then paste it into another document. And did you know God also can cut and paste? Spiritually, He copied you in the 21st century. And then He went to the, back to the 1st century and He pasted you in alongside Jesus on the cross. Now you share in all that Jesus has done and accomplished. When Jesus died, the old you, that sin nature, that old sinful you died with Jesus Christ. He's dead. He's gone. You're a new person in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? 
Paul continues, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Through Christ, we've died to old desires. We're a brand new person in Christ. God gives every Christian a new identity, a new nature, a new disposition, a new love, a new purpose, even a new power. And he figures the least we can do is to embrace this new life and live it to the fullest. Live it by faith. Verse 16, therefore from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Now this is an incredibly significant statement that has revolutionary implications. I I will say this and it's true. This verse, verse 16, will change your life if you understand it. Paul uses Jesus as the example. On earth, the disciples knew Jesus as a man. They were familiar with his appearance. They related to him physically, tangibly. You know, even today, we picture Jesus' human traits, Middle Eastern features, black hair, maybe a Jewish nose. That's how we envision him in our minds. His humanness enabled the disciples to identify him on the street and to follow him. But you see, now that he's ascended into heaven, now that he's rose from the dead and has this resurrected body, we no longer relate to Jesus physically. We relate to him spiritually. This means that his former appearance is no longer that significant. Now certainly the fact that he was with us is theologically important. But the specifics of his appearance, his height or his weight or his facial features or his physique are no longer a relevant issue to us. He now has a resurrected body. This is why God doesn't provide us any photographs or any portraits of Jesus. Have you ever wondered? I mean, the omission was very intentional. God is teaching us a new way to view one another. Since we all now have become new people in Christ, why focus any longer on the outward person? Why not look beneath the surface of the people that you meet? As best we can, God wants us to look past the body of the person we're relating to, and He wants us to view them spiritually in Christ. And the first way to apply this principle is personally. Hey, why get bummed about your own appearance? The real you is not the outer person. It's the inner person of the heart. Remember, this body is just a tent. It's a temporary shell. It's bound to crack and weather with time. Hey, I'm more than this outer shell. I'm not the shell. I'm the nut inside. (laughs) The real me is the nut inside. That's how God views me as a delicious nut. This is how we all should see ourselves. Years ago, I ran across a revealing quote by supermodel Carol Mallory. She said this, Everywhere I went, my figure followed. But I learned I am not my figure. Hey, your looks are not you. Your personhood involves more than just how fit you are or how smart you are or how athletic you are. The real person, the real you, is the person deep down inside. 
You are what you are spiritually. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And here's another way that men particularly can apply Paul's people principle. Next time you see a supermodel or, you, or a girl you think could be one, Next time you see a pretty girl, remember, you're not really looking at that girl. The real person is underneath the wrapping paper. In reality, she might be alone. That pretty girl might be a lonely, sad, vindictive, ugly person. She's definitely a soul in need of Jesus. Paul's point for all of us is to learn to see ourselves and other people in terms of who we are in Christ, not our physical appearance. So, if you're overweight, well, you can keep working on it. But don't get bummed out about it. The real you is the new you. You're transformed through the work of Christ, fit for God's kingdom. God loves you. Your body's just a pup tent. And one day you'll trade it in for a mansion. Thus Paul writes triumphantly. He says, therefore, I love this verse, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Realize a Christian is a new species of creature that prior to the first century had never roamed this planet before. Did you know that? We're new creations. Now, you might have some friends that believe that aliens are coming to earth. Well, they're already here. In Christ, you and I are the aliens This world is not our home. We are a miracle of God's mercy. We are God's special creation. We are the first human being since the fall of man not to possess a sin nature. Our old man, remember, was crucified with Christ. We represent a brand new start for mankind. God planted in our hearts a love for him and a love for others. We are now capable of what no one before us was capable of doing. We can grow spiritually. We can live victoriously over sin. This is what Jesus means in our lives. As believers in Christ, we are the envy of the angels. We make the Old Testament Jews jealous. We are new creations. I can't stress it enough. Verse 18, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Notice God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to Him. God loves us. God is for us. It's man who's at war with God. We're the ones who need to make peace with God. Reminds me of the guy who changed careers. He went from retail sales to police work. Several months after the transition, he explained his move. He says, I prefer being a cop. The pay is fine, the hours are better, but most of all, I love a job where the customer is always wrong. (laughs) And you know, we are the ones who are always wrong, not God. We're the ones who sin. We're the ones who need to be reconciled to God, not vice versa. And Jesus has made this possible on the cross. He died to resolve the differences between sinful man and God. Through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. And then notice, he has now given us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice this, Jesus unites us to God, then sets us on the mission of bringing other people to him as well. 
When God reconciles us, He then makes us a minister of reconciliation. He continues, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now here's a mind blower for you. Here is a phenomenal truth. On the cross, God was in Christ dying to save us. Now, God is in us pleading for men to be saved. Isn't that amazing? We're ambassadors for Christ. We're divine diplomats. We're God's spokespeople on the earth. Like a foreign envoy sent to a foreign country, we speak declarations from home in a way that the locals can hear and understand. We represent heaven. As ambassadors for Christ, we convey the message of heaven in a way that earthly ears can hear and discern and grasp. And you see, this involves two priorities, two equal priorities. We need to be faithful to the message, but we also need to be flexible with our methods. We represent heaven. We need to do it well, but we also want to reach people. We need to do that well also. We need to be relatable culturally, but reliable spiritually. We need to be true to the message. but We need to be shrewd with its delivery. And Paul adds, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was the sinless sacrifice. He knew no sin. He was the spotless lamb. Yet think about it, on the cross, in those few hours, God placed the full weight of every grimy act done in every slimy place on this planet. It was suddenly thrust on Jesus' sinless shoulders. Jesus became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is amazing grace. Jesus became all that's wrong with this fallen mankind so that we could become all that's right in a holy God. He did this for you. What a message this is. Nothing is more deserving of our max effort now than to communicate the gospel effectively. This needs to be our goal. See, as ambassadors for Christ, we're like an interpreter. You know, a good interpreter, he's fluent in two languages, both the language that's being spoken and the language that's being heard. He needs to be fluent in both. And God has made us His interpreters. We need to be faithful to the message of Scripture, but then we need to be fluent in the language of culture. Chapter 6. We then, as workers together with Him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now remember, God was in Christ on the cross dying to save the world. Now God is in us pleading for men to be saved. This means that we not only work for Jesus, but we work with Him. And here Paul pleads with the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive grace without growing in grace. You know, this can happen. Don't let it happen to you. Take advantage of the favor and the access 
in the blessings that God's grace affords us. He says, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not next month. Not even the next moment. But now is the time to receive God's grace. The peak the peak season for salvation is right now. Keep in mind, salvation is a seasonal business. You know, salvation is like beach toys. It's like Christmas decorations. There are only certain times of the year when a product gets sold. And likewise, now is the day of salvation. Right now is the season for salvation. Did you know when time ends and eternity begins, you'll no longer be able to obtain salvation? Now's the season for salvation. Today, the shelves are stocked. Today, business is brisk. In fact, God needs some help behind the counter. I used to work in a grocery store, and there was a rule. If customers were stacking up at the registers, even if you were on your break or at lunch, you got back to work immediately. You dropped what you're doing, you went back to work. The goal was to never make a customer wait. And this is why today God is calling for all of His people, all of His servants, to come to the front of the store. We got customers trying to check out, and they need to be told the gospel. And when I talk about that day when time ends and eternity begins, I'm not just speaking of the day that Jesus returns, time ends and eternity begins every day for millions of people on this planet who die and meet their maker. Right this second, people all over the globe are checking out and they all desperately need Jesus. You, hear, you know, you hear a lot of talk today about near-death experiences. Folks see bright lights, they walk down long tunnels. Well, I hate to burst your bubble. But that's not really what you're going to see when you die. It's not. The problem is, is that near-death experiences aren't really dead experiences. They're just near death, not really dead. The Bible tells us what's going to really happen when we die. C.S. Lewis, I, I love how he describes it. He, he puts to pen the first moment you're going to experience after you die. He writes this. There will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It won't last forever. We must take it or leave it. This is why now is the day of salvation. Everyone to the checkouts. We've still got customers. Verse 3. He says, and he talks about his ministry now. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. I'm convinced that there are some ministries that just do more harm than good. They turn folks off through their carnal or archaic methods. The gospel will offend by its very nature. We don't want to offend unnecessarily. 
He says, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. He's going to talk about his ministry now in the next few verses. You know, a typical church member doesn't really understand the sacrifices and the difficulties that a pastor makes. You know, I've discovered this over the years. I remember when Pastor James, who had served as an elder at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, finally came on staff as our assistant pastor. I can recall several months into his tenure, he came to me one day and he told me, he said, Sandy, I just had no idea what all you go through. I thought I did, but I really didn't. You see, the Corinthians, they didn't realize all Paul had endured in his ministry to bring them the gospel. It's been said, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And in these next few verses, Paul is going to itemize the price that he's paid in ministry. He begins with the pressures of ministry. He says, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. He continues with the persecutions he found in ministry, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults. Then the passion he put into his ministry, the willing sacrifices he made, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings followed by the godly principles and priorities of his ministry, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Finally, Paul mentions a few paradoxes within his ministry by honor and dishonor. You know, it's odd how people treat me when they discover that I'm a pastor. (laughs) Some people show immediate respect. Other people show instant disdain by honor and dishonor. By evil reporting, good report. You know, against the backdrop of today's culture, the Bible is confrontational. You know, it's impossible for me to stand and teach honestly the Scriptures without ruffling some feathers. You know that? Not a week goes by that I don't make somebody mad. Trust me. Every message I preach ends in a split decision. Some folks call it a good report. Other people get offended. He says, by evil report, by good report, as deceivers and yet true. I mean, not only do I teach, but I also lead. And there are those who like the direction I set. They believe that I'm sincere and I'm seeking the Lord. I'm true. Then there are others who disagree. They think I'm a phony. You know, that I'm, I'm a liar, a deceiver. I'm telling you, every decision I make is met with controversy. This is what makes it so tough. He says, as unknown and yet well-known. You know, people think that everybody knows the pastor. But in some ways, nobody knows the pastor. Oh, everybody knows I'm Pastor Sandy. But a lot of times you forget that I'm Kathy's honey. And I'm dad to seven kids now. And I'm G-daddy to now two precious grandbabies. And I'm even a pastor to other pastors. You see, everybody knows that I'm Pastor Sandy, but few people remember I got a life outside of what I do for them. As unknown, Paul says, and yet well-known. Here's another paradox, as dying 
and behold, we live. Paul says we died of pride and selfishness, but all the while, God's life swells up in us. It's wonderful. He says that's chastened and yet not killed. God allows the pastor to taste tough times. He disciplines pastors as well. And what doesn't kill them makes them better. It does. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Oh, ministry is so full of highs and lows, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I can get my heart broken by a friend that I trusted one second, and then a few seconds later I get the joy of leading somebody into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's high one minute, a low the next. That's why you got to be persistent. Here's another irony. As poor, yet making many rich. Often a pastor gets by on a meager salary. All the while, he helps others grab hold of their spiritual riches in Christ. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. I mean, a pastor's bank account might hover near zero. But if he serves the Lord, he's laying up treasure in heaven. God will support his ministry with whatever he needs. You see, Paul's discussion about ministry wasn't tooting his own horn. That wasn't what he was doing. The Corinthians had questioned him. And Paul now just wants his friends in Corinth to know what he's endured for their sake. Like all humans, he desires to be respected. And he has that need, you know, to be appreciated. And i got to tell you, I know how Paul feels. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. You know, the toughest times in ministry are when folks criticize what they see, all the while ignoring the sacrifice you're making that they can't see. When people don't trust your heart, when they don't appreciate your efforts, it's tough. It's not right, it's not fair. But always remember, neither was the cross. It wasn't fair either. Several years ago, I came under attack from a group of critics within our church. They had some problems with what I was doing and some decisions I was making. And I'll never forget going over to my dad's house one morning and asking for his advice. I can remember going in and just sort of spilling my guts. And I said, Dad, you would think that after serving faithfully for 13 long years, I wouldn't have to keep proving myself. they, They keep wanting me to prove myself. And I'll never forget what my dad told me. He looked me straight in the eye and he says, Sandy, in this world, you've got to prove yourself to people every single day. It's true. You see, Paul didn't have to prove himself to Jesus, but he had to prove himself to people every single day. So does the pastor. So does the ministry. Paul continues in verse 11. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. In other words, we've been spilling out our guts to you. You know, we've been honest with you. You be honest with us. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Paul says, stop blaming me for your problems. I'm not the issue. You're causing your own problems. I'll never forget one night I was listening to the Dr. Laura show on the radio. She's a straight shooter. And a caller was talking about all of her problems, the problems that her parents were having. And that's when Dr. Lars, she jumped in and she corrected her. He said, no, the problems they are creating. She explained that when a tornado demolishes your house, you have a problem. But when you act selfishly and make bad choices, you're creating a problem. There's a difference. There's a difference between having a problem and creating a problem. 
And Paul is saying that these Corinthians, they're creating their troubles. They're not victims. Verse 13. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. He's saying, now, I've been honest with you. Now, you be honest with me. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And here is a crucial biblical principle. The imagery Paul evokes here is that of a plow pulled by two oxen. The necks of the animals are placed in a wooden harness or a yoke. This yoke was constructed to force the oxen to work together. It caused pain if one of the oxen refused to cooperate with the other. The yoke would choke the one who pulled ahead. It would pinch back on the one who lagged behind. The restrictiveness of the yoke caused teamwork. It forced teamwork. Thus, it's easier on the animals to yoke together two of the same breed. Mix a donkey with an ox, and all you do is ensure friction and frustration. Different species have different natures that will pull apart and fight each other. And likewise, a believer and an unbeliever are separate species. Different breeds with different natures. There's no way around it. A believer is born of God. They're alive to the things of God, whereas the unbeliever, though a nice person, maybe, they're still dead in their sin. and They're unaware of God's Spirit. Hey, put these two breeds together in the same yoke, whether that yoke is a marriage or a business or a roommate situation or a serious dating relationship. Put two different species in the same yoke and you produce long-term frustration. Oh, at first the two parties might work well together, but over time they'll eventually pull in separate directions. They'll either pinch or they'll choke each other. The yoke will cause pain. Paul asks five rhetorical questions. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? None. And what communion has light with darkness? None. And what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial means worthless. It was an ancient epithet for Satan. In other words, what accord, what agreement has Christ and Satan? None. And then he concludes, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And sadly, none. You know, some stuff just doesn't mix. Oil and water, honey and vinegar, drinking and driving, hot days and chocolate bars, water and electricity, bulldogs and gators, Sunshine and homework, believers and unbelievers. You see, chapter 5 calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. That means we need to speak the language and relate culturally to the people around us. We can't withdraw from the world and still be ministers of reconciliation. But neither can we become overly involved or overly entwined with the world or we end up vexed and frustrated. You see, it's one thing to have contact with the world. It's another thing to enter a contract with the world. We can interact, but we step over a lethal line when we get too intertwined and too interconnected. Paul adds one more question in verse 16. He says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. Guys, you are God's kids. That's why it's often said, if a child of God marries a child of the devil, then the child of God is sure to have some trouble with his father-in-law. It's true. In fact, all that's more true than you really know. I could fill a five-gallon bucket full of the tears I've had shed in my office by people who experience the pain of being married to an unbeliever. Nothing is as agonizing and as complex and as taxing on a Christian as being married to someone who doesn't share their most basic heartfelt allegiance to Jesus Christ. There's a road sign at the beginning of the Alaskan Highway. It reads, Choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. And if you're a single Christian dating an unbeliever, that road sign is for you. You need to give some serious thought to the person you marry. And and let me add, you, you young girls, listen to what I'm saying. And you young guys. And let me add one more thought. Just my opinion. Just my conviction. But it is absolutely true. And it's this. You'll never marry an unbeliever if you never date an unbeliever. That's true. Well, chapter 6, verse 17, quotes Isaiah 52. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In our interactions with the world, we need a balance. Don't isolate yourself from the world, but neither should you assimilate its values and its relationships. We need a healthy mix. Be be a friend of sinners, but make sure you fellowship with saints. That's the difference. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Evil company corrupts good habits. Hang out with the wrong people and you'll eventually get hung out to dry. A mom was trying to teach this to her sons one day. and She was out in the garden. She held up her two white gloves. And then she said, boys... Notice when I stick these gloves in the dirt, the gloves become dirty. The dirt doesn't become glovey. Don't let the folks you're trying to lift up end up dragging you down. Make sure you give your whole heart to Jesus and fellowship with His people. So, Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. 